Now we come to the climax of the Day of Atonement. This is what everything in the book has been leading towards. Now they have been taught what clean and unclean is. And remember, most of this is about not entering the tabernacle. Skin disease, discharges, dead bodies, all that kind of stuff was about not entering the tabernacle. Because if you enter the tabernacle in this state without a sacrifice or a washing, then you are being defiling the tabernacle. Now remember, at this point, the tabernacle, they cannot enter it because they have worshipped the golden calf. So I know it feels like it's been a long time since the golden calf, but remember, it's only been a couple months for them at the most, and the entire time they haven't been able to enter the tabernacle. God has now laid out how you become clean through sacrifices and stuff. So now comes the day when they're actually going to cleanse the tabernacle of that sin with the um, golden calf. So right now we're going to talk about the actual day of the Day of Atonement and what they did and how that changes everything. And then later when we get to chapter 23, we'll talk about the Day of Atonement in a more festival kind of a sense connected to all the other festivals. So we're going to talk about it twice. So I'm not going to go into all these. Um, just know that we're going to revisit this again in the greater context. So right now I'm just going to kind of go through it. So we come to the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the, the sixth festival and God's calendar. And it is one of the most important events. It takes place on the first day of their new year. The first month of their calendar is Tishri. And so they would go into the tabernacle and they would cleanse the tabernacle every single year of the sins of the people. When we get to chapter 23, we'll talk more about why they would do that every year. Right now we're just talking about what it's doing for them now. Now, what would happen is the entire nation would come to the tabernacle and they would all stand and watch this happen. For them to see this physically happen was an important thing for them. Now, one of the major things that the Day of Atonement is doing is first on this event is cleansing the tabernacle to send the golden calf. But on every other year, <clears throat> atoning for the sins of ignorance. See, you and I, commit a lot of sins that we never even knew about. Think about all the things that you probably said to people and it hurt them and you had no idea that it hurt them because you're just not mature enough to know that or not dived into God's word enough or they didn't have the, the courage to tell you or whatever. And all these other things that you didn't realize. I mean, as you've gotten older and older, you realize, oh my gosh, that's a sin too. Oh my gosh, that's a sin. And the more and more you know God, the more and more you feel convicted. And so, and you know that if you feel a lot more convicted now than you did 10 years ago when you're a Christian, there's probably a lot more conviction coming later as you keep walking with them. And so this is what God calls the sins of ignorance. Yes, you don't know about it, so you're not like in danger of God's wrath for not confessing sins that you don't know about because he's not an unrealistic God. But the reality is you still sin and you still have defiled yourself because just because you don't know about it doesn't mean you still haven't sinned. And you haven't brought defilement. And so what would happen is over an entire year of all these sins that are not being repented of and not being there's no sacrifice for because they don't know to, that sin begins to build up in the nation. And it becomes so thick, for lack of a better word, that it actually defiles the tabernacle and God can't dwell with them anymore. So in the Day of Atonement, every year they would go in 
and they would make the sacrifice and pour the blood out on the Ark of the Covenant to cleanse the sins of ignorance that the nation had committed for an entire year. That would kind of wipe the slate clean, for lack of a better phrase, and it would allow God to dwell with them for another year. Now that's important to understand, because we often think of sin as a action or behavior that we do to somebody, and it hurts us emotionally and relationally. But it is such a foreign concept for us to think of sin actually contaminating physical space. Like that, that this area over here can actually become contaminated and become darker and more sinful. We don't think that way. That, that feels mystical. That feels pagan to us. But it's not. Okay, look, I, and I have known people, there are certain places I've walked by and I have felt the darkness. I have felt the evil. I know a woman that when she goes anywhere near Hindu temples, even the one right up there in Delaware, she begins to throw up. Some people are more spiritually sensitive than other people. There's nothing wrong if you can't feel that. Some people are more athletic. Some people are more um, intellectual. Some people are more artistic. Some people are just more spiritual. And not in a they're more spiritual, more godly, but they just sense that other realm a little bit more than other people. And you can feel the darkness because of what has been done there. Year after year after year after year. There is a something that is built up there. And I don't understand it. And I know it sounds mystical and Hollywood, but it is real. And that's what God is saying. That there is a darkness and a sin that is building up in Israel over time. That's actually affecting the space where God can no longer dwell with them in space, time, and matter because the space is becoming defiled. And they have to deal with that. And that's what the Day of Atonement is. The entire nation stands before the tabernacle and they acknowledge that their home is becoming a defiled place and that God can't dwell with them in this place anymore. And they all stand together and say, I know there's so many sins that I am not aware of And so to this day, on this day, we watch our priest, high priest, and we join him in national repentance as we cleanse this space of our sin. That's a whole different way of thinking for us. But the fact that they thought that way and the fact that God commands them to deal with that means that's a very real way that we should probably be thinking. And if you talk to people who are more spiritually sensitive to the other realms, you realize it is a real thing even to this day. And so the reality is that's what the Day of Atonement is dealing with. So on this day, Aaron would dress up to look more like a servant. He would not wear his gold and purple and blue robes and put the ephod with the gemstones on it. He would look more like a ragged, sinful servant tearing his clothes and his wretchedness. And he would put an ephod on, a vest on, but it would not be the bright and color one. And then he would offer a bull to atone for his own sins or to purify himself. So he would sacrifice an ox to purify his own sins. And then he would offer a ram offering as a burnt offering. So he would purify himself and then a burnt offering. So he's removing the defilement of sin from his life 
and removing the debt of sin from his life. Then he would do the same thing for the people. But for the people, he would take a, two goats as a purification offering and a ram as a burnt offering. So the people don't get the ox, they get two goats. Now this is what they would do. He would take the one goat, they would um, draw lots to determine what goat died. And he would take the goat, and just like a normal purification offering, he would slice the throat, drain the blood out into a bowl, and then he would take the animal and put it up on an altar and burn it. He would then take the blood, dressed like a, a wretched sinner, and he would enter the Holy of Holies, because this is the only day he was allowed to do it, and he would pour the blood out on the Ark of the Covenant. And once again, as I talked about in Exodus, the Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God, but it also contained the sins of the people in the box. So that when God looked down, he saw the sins of the people and he couldn't dwell. That was his, his um, footstool for his throne. And he couldn't even put his own feet on the footstool because of the sin of the people. But now the blood of the goat is being poured over it. It's purifying those sins. And now when he looks down, he sees the blood of an innocent, blameless, undefiled animal. And now he can put his feet on his footstool and dwell with his people for another year until those sins built up and the blood went away and they would do this again and again. And remember, this isn't literal. This is symbolic. But still on a spiritual level, there is a buildup of sin happening. And so this is what he would do. Then he would take the second goat and he would lean into it, putting all of his sins and the sins of the people because he is now the people's representative. So he has become Israel as their high priest, and he would lean onto it and transfer his sins to it. Then other priests would lead the goat out into the wilderness so that it can never find its way back again. And this is God's way of saying, I will remove your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Now what God means is the east and the west never touch each other. I mean, I know technically we feel like we can, if you go west long enough, you'll eventually get to the west. But not with a compass. If you get a compass and you face east and you start walking, you can walk around the entire planet and come back to the same spot, and that compass will still say east. It will never say west. And that's what God means. In a, some, some sense, the west and the east never talk, touch each other. And so that goat was led away. So it would be, now if you're a person here, you're watching the priest go in, and he's you. He's vicariously become you and your representative. And he's purifying you of your sins of ignorance and he comes back out and you watch the other two priests take the goat and lead as far away as it can and that goat disappears over the horizon and you know that's your sin and your sin has just left you forever that's a powerful visual a powerful visual that you go through every year chapter 16 verse 10 it says but the goat that they led away has been designated by lot for Aziel. It is stood alive before Yahweh to make atonement for on it by sending away to Aziel, Azazel. Okay? Azazel. What is that? God says, lead the goat away to be given over to Aziel. I can't see it. Azazel. Gotta slow it down. What does that mean? But Azazel is the name of a demon. And this has caused a lot of problems. Because are they leading a goat out to be offered up to a demon in the wilderness? Azazel is a goat demon of the wilderness. 
So this has caused a lot of problems, like, oh my goodness, God, what just happened here? Scholars don't know what to do with this. But here are the way they've worked through this. Now that word's not even in the NIV. It just said that they're making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. That word's not even in. So they've interpreted it for you. They're not translating, they're interpreting. So they picked one of the views that I'm going to go through and they said, yep, that's the one. So that's why it's important to read other translations and read footnotes and stuff because there's a lot of times Bibles make interpretations for you. And that's why multiple translations are important. Here's a possibility. This is a demon living in the wilderness. Some people say it is a demon living in the wilderness. That's what it as as um, Azazel is. And they say the reason is that the one goat is going to Yahweh and the other goat is going to Azazel. And Yahweh is never really contrasted. When Yahweh is mentioned, he's very rarely contrasted with a non-personal object. Now, I know that sounds like so like English teacher-like, but the reality is usually when God is contrasted with something else, it's contrasted with something that's personal, like a personal being or an animal or a human. He's very rarely contrasted with an object or a space. So they would say it has to be a demon because it wouldn't make sense for God to say one to God and another one to the wilderness because that's the personal with the non-personal. You know, I, I whatever. <laughs> okay, that's my opinion. I'm not a grammar expert like they are, but whatever. The Jewish writings make it very clear that this is a demon and it's later going to be mentioned in Leviticus as a demon. So they insist that if you really truly see Azazel as a demon, they insist that the goat is not being offered to the demon as an offering because that would be totally demonic and pagan. In fact, when you get to Leviticus 17:7, God is forbidding that anybody offer anything up to the goat demon of the wilderness. So that would be a contradiction on God's behalf, on, on, on his end. So they would say that they're basically symbolically sending their sins back to the demon. That if their sins have been transferred to the goat and the goat is being led to the demon, it's almost like you're saying, take that back, Satan. I don't know. That feels a little weak to me because I never see that anywhere in the Bible of this idea of giving it back to the demons. I mean, we do know that demons are often behind a lot of our temptations, but you have to understand we would sin even if there was no demons in the world. So... It's almost like blaming the demon that you are the way that you are. Other scholars have said, no, 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 no. When you're dealing with a culture that is already living and surrounded by all these people are offering to demons and that kind of stuff, and if God is saying that a man who's had a sexual omission is not allowed in the tabernacle for the rest of the day unless he accidentally mixed the pagan culture with the godly, then why in the world would God have you lead a goat out to a demon in the wilderness on the most holy day of the entire year, knowing that they could so easily mess that one up and confuse what he's trying to say, especially one month after the golden calf incident? There's no way that God would ever, anyway, connect these things so closely together that we who are stupid sheep would just not even think and then start going into paganism like that. And so the reality is that this is not probably a demon. So where does this word come from? We don't know. 
Some scholars have connected Azazel to a rare Hebrew word meaning the complete destruction. So some say it's kind of phonetically similar to a Hebrew word that means complete destruction. So you're leading your sin out into the wilderness to be completely destroyed so that your sin exists no more. Because that goat's going to die out there, not connected to the camp. Others say that this could be connected to another word that means a rocky precipice. And so you're basically just leading it out into the nowhere. We ultimately don't know, but for me, theologically speaking, and knowing how much God is saying, do not be like the pagans. And so many of his laws are to distance their thinking as far away from pagan thinking as possible that it feels very unlikely that he's saying, go offer it up to the wilderness demon. Because they're going to so confuse that. You give it one generation and they'll confuse it. So most likely he's just saying that this is going to be taken away for complete destruction or taken out into the wilderness or the scapegoat. So yes, I would agree with the NIV interpretation, but you have to know that is an interpretation. Does that kind of make sense? Quick question. So, in, um, and you might be getting to this, in Egypt, the, the, um, there was a goat god. Was that called Azazel? Or? No, because that was, a, that was an Egyptian term. This would be more of a Semitic term. There is a goat god in every culture. And even when you get the Romans, there's a goat god. His name is Pan. And he was a god of Pompeii. And Pompeii was really messed up. But there's a, and there's other goat gods too. So there's a goat god and um, there's actually a temple and um, outside of Dan um, that they worshipped a goat god. And they, um, it was actually called the gateway to hell. <laughs> they actually built a tunnel that they believe would take them as close to hell as possible so they could worship the goat god. So there's a goat god in every culture. And even to this day, the stereotypical image of Satan in our culture is a goat like God. And even when C.S. Lewis portrayed the worst being that Lucy first encounters at Narnia is a goat, a fawn. Now, C.S. Lewis is making a theological because that fawn is Pan. And Pan was one of the most sexual, perverted, demonic beings of the Greek culture. And yet, that's the first thing Lucy meets. And you're like, okay, C.S. Lewis, that's a little creepy and weird. But his point was that Mr. Thomas eventually is convicted of what he's doing, and he repents of it, and then he's punished for that, and then Aslan frees him from his entombed Teen Turner statue, and his point is even the most corrupt, most evil thing can be redeemed by God. And that's what he's trying to communicate with that story. So... The reality is, is that um, it shows up in just every culture that there is. Then he, as he goes in, he would go in with incense. So God kind of comes back and says, oh, by the way, when he goes in, he must go with incense. And the incense, he would swing back and forth in a canter, which is a circular device with a bunch of holes in it, like two um, um, spaghetti straining bowls put on top of each other, um, just smaller. And he would swing that back and forth. The purpose of the smoke was to create a screen for the high priest so he wouldn't be able to see the Ark of the Covenant. So he would go in and produce all this smoke so he couldn't see. Now, remember, he's only walking three feet, and then he's going to hit the box. And then he would pour the blood on. So he would get close enough to feel it and pour the blood on and walk out. And he would swing this thing the entire time to produce as much smoke as possible so he couldn't see the Ark of the Covenant. 
So you have to realize, except for the people who built the Ark of the Covenant, that was pretty much the last time they saw it. Unless they were sinning and violating the laws of God. But then they got dealt with pretty harshly in that sense. So this is an unknown, like once that artist dies, unless you sin on a major level and violate the holiness of God, they're going to forget what it looks like after a long period of time, multiple generations. And there's a really good description in Exodus, so we have a pretty good idea. He was also to dip his fingers in the blood of the bull and then sprinkle it over everything. So he would sprinkle it over the tabernacle, his clothes, himself, all this kind of stuff. So that's how he did the Day of Atonement. Then the entire day, the entire nation is watching this and they were to fast why they watched this happen. Because fasting would have shown that the people were eliminating sin. Now, here's the reality. They're not just watching it. They're physically fasting. So they're feeling their body become weaker and weaker and weaker as the day is going on, which means that they're physically experiencing this thing as well. And so there's a whole... Now, remember, I mentioned this with the sacrifices. In our worship services, we're very passive in many ways. But God has created something where they're actively involved in a lot of ways. And yeah, you might think like, wow, fasting is not my idea of worshiping God. Okay, that's fine. But you have to acknowledge at least there is a physical participation on the behalf of the people as they do this. So the fact that this sacrifice had to be repeated year after year after year after year demonstrates the inefficiency of this sacrifice. And this is the imagery that Hebrews is trying to communicate. If you were in my Hebrews class, the idea is that the priests had to continually offer up the blood of bulls and goats every single year, which because every year the sins of the people would build up. That's a powerful lesson. So you're a modern-day Israelite in the Gospels, and for thousands of generations, you, have, you and your people have been watching another sacrifice take care of the sins that have built up in your nation again, again. Again. And no matter how many times we wipe this sin out, it just keeps coming back. And then one day, the Son of God comes down, the eternal Son of God, offering up eternal sacrifice. And you hear very intelligent men like Paul and the author of Hebrews and Peter talking about a once and for all cleansing. That's a powerful imagery. You and I, we, we get that imagery. It feels powerful to us. But how much more powerful would have it been if we had grown up watching the Day of Atonement every single year? Because our sins kept building up and we couldn't really quite wipe it out. Even with the most intense obedience to God, sacrificial, perfect system, it still wasn't being dealt with. And then all of a sudden this new sacrifice comes along and you're hearing words and language theologically that you've never heard any priest ever in your entire lifehood. And if you really begin to realize how theologically tight and connected it is to everything else that you've ever grown up with, you realize it makes logical conclusion. And then how awesome is that? That one day of atonement 
for all sins that have ever happened in all humanity. Now, God commanded us that we do the Day of Atonement forever. Now, once again, this is to be translated through the Holy Spirit today. Are we to go get a tabernacle and a couple goats as a family? No. But is there something as a family that you should do on the Day of Atonement to remember the significance of what Christ has become as your goat sacrifice? Yeah. Can you do something as a family where you intentionally fast and you repent of your sins, but rather than watching another year's sins being taken out, you are thanking and praising God that your Day of Atonement is eternal and that you never have to do this? Yeah. Remember, you're still expected to do the law. Just translate it through the Holy Spirit. But we'll talk about that more when we get to all those seven festivals. Because when we go through the, that's one of my favorite parts of Leviticus. When we go through the seven festivals and put them all together, it is cool. It is fascinating. So that's the Day of Atonement. Makes sense? Once again, I'll, pe- I'll go over all again and I'll piece it all together. And it makes even more sense once you piece it in with the Feast of Trumpets and the Tabernacles and all that kind of stuff. And so some things I'm holding off until we can put all the Lego pieces together in chapter 23, so to speak. 